tonight we're going to um, keep plugging away in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter 23. Um, if you normally use a phone, that's cool. But I, tonight, I don't know why, I just think it would be helpful to have the whole thing in front of you. So if you want to grab a Bible from the pew in front of you, um, even just to kind of see the whole chapter like on one page. I don't even know if it's on one page. Maybe it splits over two. But anyways, we are going to get through all of chapter 23 tonight. Normally we don't do this. We uh, usually do smaller chunks, um, but this kind of, the passage I think needs to stay together, chapter 23, all of it. Um, and so the, the theme is easy to follow. Um, we maybe won't go quite as deep into each verse or section as we normally would, but um, we'll still understand what's going on, and it made sense to me to kind of do this all in a big, happy chunk. So uh, what we're about to read are probably maybe the harshest, most scathing things that we have record of Jesus saying. Maybe he said harsher or more scathing things at some point, um, but we don't have them. Um, usually we try to emulate Jesus and be like him, do what he does. I think in this case, this, this may be something that Jesus uniquely did as Messiah. Um, and at face value, it feels kind of awkward to read this passage. Um, if you missed it, Matthew 23. Um, it feels kind of like, I don't know if you guys have memories of this, but like if you're at a friend's house when you were younger and your friend was getting in trouble with his parents, like his mom or something, and you're just kind of like off to the side, like trying to pretend like you're interested in Good Housekeeping magazine and they're getting yelled at and you're like, this is weird. That's kind of like what's happening here. We're like awkward bystanders listening in on Jesus's remarks to the Pharisees, but it's actually so much more than that. Um, I think that the Spirit of God would use this passage to warn us. So tonight's a, a warning night, I suppose, to warn us against the, one of the biggest dangers in following Jesus, which is pretending. Putting an image out into the world that does not match what's inside. Right or wrong, justified or not, this is probably the world's biggest hindrance and turnoff to Christianity, whether it's someone's coworker or Carl Lentz or your Facebook friend or Bill Hybels, uh, your neighbor or Mark Driscoll or something. Um, many people think that Christians are not only judgmental, but also hypocritical, claiming to live one way, claiming to be people of love, um, but then their actions demonstrate something else. Our world sees it in their everyday life with people they know, and then also with famous pastors and Christian leaders on the news. Um, in my mind, the shocking thing should not be that Christians mess up and sin. I don't think that this should surprise us anymore. Um, the thing that should be shocking to us is that we try to hide and pretend. Now, to be fair, I think everyone does this, um, not just Christians, but we have less excuse than anybody to do this because we are the redeemed children of God who, uh, sees us completely, knows everything about us, everything that we have done and will do, and has forgiven us and accepted us and extended grace upon grace, and we're covered by the blood of Jesus. So if, if anyone shouldn't have to hide, it should be us, and yet we do. Um, so this passage is directed at the hypocrisy and the brokenness of Israel's leaders, but it um, is very much for all of us today as well to consider in our own lives. Um, since we're doing a whole chapter, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing up front like I usually do, so we'll just kind of start plugging away one section at a time and stop along the way as we need to. So Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So in this first section, the first handful of verses, Jesus is addressing the crowds, not the Pharisees directly, the crowds that had gathered around for kind of the commotion of the last chapter or two. Um, and I got stuck a bit actually on the first four, uh, four verses when I started studying. I was like, oh no, this is a bad sign. Like I thought before I had studied, I think I needed to do the whole chapter and I got stuck in the first verse. I was like, uh, this is not gonna be good. Um, but here's what's happened. It seemed like a little bit of a contradiction. Uh, Jesus tells them, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, do everything they tell you, but actually don't do what they do. Don't do what they tell you. So it feels like a little bit of a contradiction. He's saying that um, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, meaning they sit in a position of like authority to teach the law. Um, so he says, so do what they say, but actually don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. So here's what I've gathered. I read a stupid amount on how to make sense of these verses, hopefully so that you don't ever have to. And here's what I've gathered. I think most, most Bible scholars think that verses two and three are some of the like most epic, biting sarcasm in the Bible. So when Jesus says, they sit in Moses' seat, do what they do, he's basically saying like, look at these big shots, do everything that they tell you, they tell you to do because look at how great they are. False, do not do what they do because they don't even practice all they teach. I think that's actually what's happening here, which actually is kind of fun. They make all these tiny detailed rules of how to follow God properly, and then don't even help people in that process. So this, that concept is kind of up for debate. Some people think that most Pharisees had day jobs, and some scholars think many Pharisees that like was their day job was to just sit around discussing the law and following the Lord. Um, so some people think that Pharisees had, had kind of created all these rhythms and habits that one had to do to follow God properly, but it was so much that an average dude who had a normal job, a trade, would not be able to do it all. Um, so some Pharisees were separated from normal life, didn't have a normal job, so they could do all these things. They had the time to do all these things, and they were kind of putting that weight on everyone else, inappropriately burdening people, not, and also not helping them, kind of guiding them on their, their journey of following God. It would be like if I told you guys, Hey, I've cracked the code. If you really wanna get God and follow him closely, you guys need to read your Bible for like six hours a day and pray for six hours a day. That's the only way that it's gonna work. Like technically, maybe I could do that. I don't, but I could because I can do that during my work day. Um, but most people can't and that would be ridiculous and it is not required. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't do that. Maybe once in a while, it's fine, but... Uh, this idea of what the Pharisees were doing just totally goes against what Jesus has said um, is earlier in Matthew chapter 11 when he says that his teaching, his way of life, he calls it a yoke. Um, that's what it is. It's just Jesus's way is um, easy and his burden is light. And it, people should, when they come to Jesus, should be able to find rest for their souls. This is the opposite of what was happening with the Pharisees. Verse five. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So in the first few verses, he tells them don't practice what they teach because they don't even do it all. Um, and now he says that what they do practice they're doing so that people can see them. 
Their lives have become this kind of permanent performative religion. Um, phylacteries, if you didn't know, are these little like containers made out of like leather or something and they would roll up tiny little scrolls with um, Hebrew scriptures on them and they would put them in there and they would tie those little containers onto their hands or to their head. They were trying to follow these um, Old Testament laws, namely in the Shema, which we read a few weeks ago. Um, Later in that passage, it says that um, Moses tells them to bind these words on their hands and to put them as frontlets for their eyes. And so they took that very literally and would put the words of scripture in these tiny little containers and um, tie them to themselves. Um, so they're following that very literally. They were making it known that they were doing this, having wider phylacteries and all these tassels and stuff. Um, they took it literally. Um, I think that we should bring back phylacteries. I don't know about you guys, but... Um, so they were drawing attention to their weird Bible jewelry and accessories, and they sought and they loved the honor that came with um, being in the religious elite. They loved being called rabbi. They loved sitting in the special seats at banquets. They had respect. They loved it. It inflated them. And this was just totally opposite from the values of Jesus and his kingdom, namely with being humility, um, the, the goal being humility. So Jesus corrects this and tells the crowds, don't be like the Pharisees in this way. Verses eight through 12. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Um, I loved uh, a Bible scholar, Robert Mount, summarized this, those verses really well. He said, what Jesus is speaking against is the tendency to develop ecclesiastical hierarchies that elevate certain persons above others. The only hierarchy that the church is to know is Jesus as teacher and God as father. If there's anything the church knows how to do, it's develop hierarchies. Whether it's official or unofficial, we develop hierarchies of who is important and uh, important in the church, and it usually messes things up. It can be helpful sometimes, but it usually goes south and doesn't go well for us. And so Jesus wants us to remember, every Christian to remember, that he is your pastor. He is your shepherd and your leader and your teacher. So now we move on to the next section, and when we read it, you're gonna be like, whoa, those are some harsh words. He moves on to, uh, that was supposed to be a pun, and I just really wish that you guys would have caught on, but it's fine. Um, he moves on to directly speak against the Pharisees. One commentator notes that these woes, there it is, are not meant to be like vindictive or spiteful, but um, He's judging them, like judicial, like he's casting a sentence on them. He's not just trying to hurt them with his words. So we'll do about one at a time. Verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. First thing you might notice, verse 14 is missing. Um, at least I think it will be from all of our Bibles in here. Um, don't be alarmed, everything is okay. Verse 14 likely was added later, like well after Matthew wrote his letters and the earliest copies were made. So the verse most scholars think is not original to Matthew. The more like the older and more reliable manuscripts of the New Testament don't have that verse in there. It's probably taken from Mark or Luke or something and added into this version of Matthew's version of the story. 
we did a teaching on this concept. If that, if what I just said is like, wait, what are you talking about? We did a teaching on it um, called textual criticism, and we can go back and find it if you want to learn about that. But Jesus calls them hypocrites because they have made their life about the kingdom of God, about obeying Yahweh, but they refuse to see God in the flesh before them. They refuse to enter the kingdom of God that they supposedly were in, in charge of in some way. They refused to see Jesus, that he was launching this kingdom right before their eyes, and they were attempting to stop others from following Jesus. Next, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus judges the Pharisees for the irony of how much effort they go through to convert someone to Judaism, to bring someone to God, only to turn them into someone like them who is far from God, in their heart, far away from God, whose outward appearance, appearance looks holy, but inside is far from it. Moving on to verse 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. This section is very easily lost on us when we read through it. It just feels kind of like another era of time where people swear oaths. We don't really do this sort of thing anymore. Um, so people in this day, I, if I understand it correctly, would try to provide like surety and intensity to the things that they were um, wanting to convince someone of or promising to do something, they would bring some intensity to those things by swearing on the temple or the gold in the temple or the altar. And like we sort of jokingly say today, like I, I swear on my mother's grave or something like that, but that doesn't really mean much. It just means I, I mean what I'm saying, you know? Um, but I think these held legitimate legal weight for people in, in this time. So we have, a, it's like our way of saying I'm telling the truth, but back then it was a little bit more weighty than that. Um, would maybe legally bind people to tell the truth or to make good on a promise or a vow that they were making. And the Pharisees had apparently created and propagated this system of like which vows were or were not legitimate um, based on how they were made or what they were sworn upon. One scholar commented that they speculate the Pharisees did this to kind of manipulate oaths for their like selfish reasons or personal gain. I don't know how that works, but they probably did it. Um, Jesus basically says that the only reason that any of these oaths matter at all is because they are attempting to swear that you're like telling the truth or that you'll do what you will say you're going to do. Um, whether by the temple, the altar, the gold in it, they only matter because they have something to do with the God that dwells in the temple. So basically, every, if every oath is sworn on something God adjacent, there's really no need to swear oaths at all, but just to simply tell the truth. You should not need to make an oath about telling the truth, but that should just be what the language of Jesus' followers is, is telling the truth, that we do what we say that we're going to do. So Jesus is kind of criticizing, I think, the uselessness and the deceptiveness of the whole system that they were just wrapped up in. People of God just need to tell the truth. We don't have to promise or swear oaths. Next, woe, verse 23. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So the Pharisees so desired the appearance of following God to the most detailed levels that they would like weigh and measure out herbs from their gardens as part of their offerings. Meanwhile, they're missing out on the big weighty matters, the things that God like at his core desired from his people, which was to do justice and to be merciful and to be faithful. The image he gives is hilarious. They're like, imagine someone (laughs) with a goblet of wine and a chalice and they're like trying to pick out this gnat so they don't become defiled drinking wine with the bug in it and there's a camel in their cup too. I don't know how that works, but it's funny. Um, Moving on from that. 29 through 32. Nope, 25. Woe to you teachers, of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus, in that verse, just explains what he intended by those last few verses for us. We don't have to unpack it. The Pharisees wanted the appearance of godliness and holiness, and they focused on those actions that helped them look that way, but inside they were dead and far from God. Verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. So apparently the Pharisees would build up these monuments to the prophets and claimed we wouldn't have done what our ancestors did when they murdered prophets of old. We would never do that. Um, Ironically, they were bragging about something that they were about to do. They were literally about to have Jesus arrested and murdered, and they were turning people away from him since from the very beginning. So Jesus basically tells them, you are just like them. You're cut from the same cloth, literally are their descendants. He says in this kind of chilling line, he says, go ahead and, and do what you're gonna do. And then continuing this idea, Jesus um, calls them, again, the offspring of Satan, the serpent, in verse 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. So basically Jesus is saying Israel's leaders have a habit of um, murdering the messengers that God sends them. From the first murder, Abel, to the last recorded one of Zechariah, Jesus says he's gonna send prophets and sages. This is likely referring to the early church leaders. 
um, he's going to send these um, prophets and sages to the Pharisees and they're going to kill them like they killed Stephen. Jesus says this judgment that's been stored up for them is going to actually, um, uh, f- judgment stored up for them murdering God's um, leaders, God's righteous messengers is going to be poured out on this particular generation, this generation that Jesus was speaking to. More on that in just a bit. Final passage, verses uh, 37 to 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is lamenting about how many times he tried and how much he desired that these people would have acknowledged and seen him as the Messiah. He longed for them to repent so that he could gather them under his wing. But then he says, your house is left desolate, essentially saying, I am leaving you to yourselves and the judgment that's coming. And then he says that he won't see them again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So many think that this, that verse right there is a hint that at some point in time, um, ethnic Israel, maybe all of it, will uh, repent and come to see Jesus as the Messiah. There are passages in Romans that kind of elaborate on this topic. Scholars have devoted their whole lives to this very kind of particular issue of how we understand the Bible's, what is Israel's role in the future after they have kind of rejected Jesus. Um, We're not digging into that now, but but some people think that that's what that verse is kind of hinting at. What I'm more certain of uh, from this passage, particularly 33 through 39, is that Jesus is foreshadowing um, a particular judgment on that generation of Israel's leaders, um, namely in the destruction of the temple that would happen in the year 70 AD. So I think that's what is Jesus is referring to, and there's some more passages in Matthew that um, deal more closely with that concept of Jesus hinting at, kind of foreshadowing some judgment that was gonna come on Israel. So we're gonna save most of our conversation about that for those messages, but I think that's what's happening here. Okay, so the summary of the whole chapter, 23, Chapter 23, Jesus is warning his listeners to not be like the Pharisees because on the outside they were one thing and on the inside they were something totally different and, and they were stubborn about it, insisting that they were good and fine. And in this process they were leading people astray, leading people away from Jesus and this resulted in some serious judgment both in Jesus' words that he says to them here and also the judgment that he promises is, is coming to them soon. So now, just a few thoughts on that chapter. At face value, um, as readers of the story, I think we're supposed to first just kind of sit in and lament um, the tragedy of the Pharisees, of Israel's religious leaders who should have been the first to see who Jesus was and the first to follow him and the most helpful in bringing others to him, Um, but they were the ones who rejected him and whose outer life looked right and great and desirable, but on the inside it was um, dead. The irony is, is just staggering. But I think we're also supposed to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, do I do this? Am I like, am I like them at all? In fact, um, if we do that, if we ask that question, I think that is probably the most unpharisaical thing that we could do. 
the most kingdom of God oriented thing that we can do is to try to not seem like we have it all together. I feel like that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, is that we try specifically to not do what the Pharisees do and not pretend like we have it all down, but to examine ourselves and look inward and ask God to show us how and where we have missed it and where we have messed up. Um, and I think it is precisely the unwillingness to do that or the inability to do that that made the Pharisees what they were. They didn't look inward and consider how Jesus was drawing them out, how they were wrong, how they, have missed, how they had missed things, and they couldn't or they wouldn't consider that maybe they were wrong, gotten some things backwards. Um, There's a psychiatrist and an author named M. Scott Peck, I think he wrote books in the 70s and the 80s, um, wrote a book called People of the Lie. The book, I think, was in a, I read parts of it in seminary, so I don't know the whole thing. But I think the premise of the book is that he was trying to understand sin from like a psychological perspective, trying to leave as much spirituality and Bible out of it as he could, um, but understanding sin and evil from a psychiatric perspective. And there's a few quotes I remember reading. I found very profound, and they apply here. So I'm just reading three different ones, all from the same chapter. The evil in this world is committed by the spiritual fat cats by the Pharisees of our own day, the self-righteous who think they are without sin because they are unwilling to suffer the discomfort of significant self-examination. The essential component of evil is not the absence of the sense of sin or imperfection, but the unwillingness to tolerate that sense. Finally, we become evil by attempting to hide from ourselves. Those lines have haunted me since I read them. Uh, suffering the discomfort of significant self-examination, being unwilling to tolerate the sense of sin and imperfection in you or hiding from yourself. I think this is what Jesus is warning against for us today. Warning us against pretending to be one thing on the outside and then ignoring or pushing away the discomfort that we experience when we know the inside does not match what it looks like on the outside. And we, as God's children, holy and dearly loved, are supposed to do the exact opposite of this, to frequently ask God to show us where we're wrong and where we've missed it. I love the language of the Psalms on this. We've all heard it before, but it is beautiful. And maybe the language that we ought to use when we do this is Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the remedy to not be like the Pharisees is simple, but it is not easy. We have to ask God to help us to be honest with ourselves, and then we repent to him when he shows us where we've been wrong. And in case you need to remember it, I know that I do every day, there is grace upon grace unending forgiveness and love. But it does require the recognition of, of doing wrong. That we tell our Father, I know I've messed up. And also requires us to turn away from it. It's really easy to hear the words of, of judgment that Jesus says to the Pharisees and hearing me talk about how dangerous it is to pretend and lie about how you're really doing. And maybe some of you are like inside like, oh no, what if that's me? You kind of like have a, a pre-guilty conscience. Um, just ask Jesus to be honest with you and ask him for the help to be honest with yourself. And if he shows you something, then you can repent and move on. Say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lead me away from this brokenness and sin by your grace. 
I don't think it's meant to send us in a spiral of like negative thought, but it's supposed to drive us to Jesus actually. The judgment of God is really, should not be scary to anyone except those who are arrogant and think that they've done no wrong or people that won't look inward and see their own brokenness. Then it is scary. Otherwise, it's a beautiful thing to be seen by your father and fully loved despite all that's broken in us. Another pastor once um, told me something profound. He said, when it comes to sinning, there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians. He said it very emphatically. He's like, there is zero difference. He said, we all do the exact same things. The only difference is that those in the kingdom of God should repent, should see it and acknowledge it for what it is and repent. I think we're meant to go through our our lives um, with the humble attitude of this tax collector in the gospels who like he beats his chest in this like visceral sign of repentance and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that has become one of the most like sacred and ancient prayers throughout church history. We don't really say it here in the uh, Protestant church, but it's beautiful. And when we lose sight of how God has shown us mercy and has saved us and how broken we are without him, that's probably when we sink into the attitude of the Pharisees. And so I'd love to um, fight against us being Pharisees by meditating on the word of God, those two scriptures that we just shared, Psalm 139 and Luke 18. Um, So we'll throw them up on the screen. And I would just love for you, just in some quiet, to pray, ponder, kind of mutter these verses under your, under your breath, repeat them over and over again, chew on them, think, think on them, um, and just pray these things. And then we will um, close our time together uh, praying and then in some worship.